This is Bonjour Chai, the second annual Great Canadian Sermon Slam edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with a special guest host, Rabbi Rachel Turkinitz in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we'll be listening to the contestants for this year's winner of the Kiddush Cup, and we'll discuss exactly what makes for a great sermon. Rabbi Rachel, how's it going? It's going pretty well considering the time of year. I'm a little hoarse, and uh, I think all rabbis and cantors uh, in in the fall approaching the Chagim uh, get a little stressed and um, push their voices. But uh, thank God everything is well. I'm not complaining. It's all good. You are the uh, rabbi at Beit Reim in Toronto? Yes. You are the winner of last year's Sermon Slam. The Kiddush Cup has been sitting in your office. Um, how has that affected your rabbinate and your sermons? Well, it, <laughs> when I first got it, we brought it. I brought it to that that Shabbat service, and it was like the Stanley Cup. It was <laughs> it was wonderful. It was really a, a lovely touch um, and a lovely way to celebrate as a community at Shul to have that that. Kiddish Cup trophy. It, it's really quite lovely and very thoughtful. I think that was the point of it all. Um, do you, do people ask about it in your office? Uh, sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. And it, it is really a lovely uh, thing to, I mean, not just in this, in the sense of being able to say that, you know, I won it and, and I, you know, Beit Reim is, is represented so well. Um, but also the idea of having it be a like a, a moment of unity um, through Canada to to say that, you know, this is a time when rabbis were able to share um, their, you know, what they say, what they do. Uh, I think it's wonderful in, in every aspect, not just the yeah, cup, but the whole absolutely. process. And uh, we have contestants today from coast to coast. So we'll get to those uh, shortly. Um, you're a uh, you're a rabbi. You're a, a great educator also. Um I'm sure you've taught people how to write sermons. You write sermons all the time. Uh, first of all, like, what makes for a great sermon in your mind? And uh, what are the essential elements, you think, of a good sermon? So the idea of sermons and homiletics, um, the, the, the way of teaching that is not the formal teaching um, approach, meaning we want someone to be able to walk away with something more, uh, from the experience. Um, and that really goes back, we see it in, in our Midrash texts from thousands and thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago, where rabbis were doing this. They were um, sort of creating these um, these sermons, though they didn't call them that, um, and, and they were structured in a way of having some fun with ideas, having some surprises with ideas, um, but definitely making connections. To me, the, the sermon is not just I'm giving over information, but the information is a bridge of connection. Mm-hmm. And, and so the idea of knowing who is listening and what are they bringing with them and then understanding what I'm bringing with me and how are we now making those connections. And so I think, um, you know, a little bit of humor, a little bit of of being able to connect as individuals um, without the distance that is felt often with a title, whether it's a rabbi or professor or doctor, uh, these titles can tend to separate people. Mm-hmm. And and I think that is 
often what's felt at the beginning of the sermon. And then one of the important challenges for me with a great sermon is to draw people together closer and forget about the titles and forget about the distance and just have those connections together to explore together and um, have it be not just inspirational, but um, sort of an enjoyable experience Mm -hmm. as well. And I think all of those things are are important. When I talk to people about sermons, I say that I I bring in the inspiration, right? You have to inspire, you have to make people feel moved by it. It's not just another class um, and and entertained by extension. Um, I always really like to focus also on the the learning, that there has to be some sort of new learning that the person walks away from. Uh, I I, I use the word chidush, right? Some novel learning, um, especially that is Torah rooted, um, that has, has, that's there. Um, And it's interesting that you bring up Midrash, because it's one of the things that I always talk about in terms of understanding what the language of Midrash is in the language of sermons are, right? Nowadays, you you would always expect a rabbi to have some sort of a joke in a sermon, maybe often start with one. And I like to point out that 100 years ago, if you were in Victorian England, you'd probably lose your job before the end of the sermon if you had a joke in there. <laughs> and... And the Midrashim are exactly the same sort of thing. And we have to understand that, that they're contextual. So we grapple with this question, right? You read this Midrash and the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai was hanging over the Israelites, right? Like a bucket, right? Um, And God was telling them either accept it or you're all going to die here, right? Um, To us, we don't understand, was this literal? Was this not literal? This was just the same type of language as saying, well, this was a joke in a contemporary sermon. This was language that people understood at the time as like, this is how you teach teach uh, homilies, you, you, this is how you teach sermons, is you insert these stories about Abraham's literally smashing the idols, about the mountain on top of it. Um, and that before you get to asking this question of what does the Midrash mean, you have to understand that contextually that was just totally normal, the way that sermons in Victorian England were totally normal for that time, and sermons today are totally normal for our time. Absolutely. And when we look back at the ancient text that we have of Midrashim, their use of pun they're playing on words so often. And there, there are those moments where, because we're not natural Aramaic speakers, we don't get the pun. And when you, you enter it through Aramaic, you're thinking, you know, that's pretty funny. Um, and, and it's, it's because we aren't their intended audience in their vernacular. So, you know, we want to be able to take how they approached it and made the connections. People connect through humor. People connect through challenge. People connect through human moments that are both positive and negative. So a sermon isn't a moment of saying, let me preach to you. It's more a moment of saying, let's connect. And here's my my way of being me, because it's very important to see the individual through the sermon as well. I don't want it to read like a book. I can open a book, but to actually bring who you are which we learn from the prophets, right? Each of our prophets has a different tone, a different persona, a different approach. We want to keep that. We want to maintain who we are as Jewish people through time and bring it to our sermons. Yeah. Do you think uh, current events are things we should lean into on sermons or try to make them more timeless? You know, that's a, such an important question. Um, I, I, I said earlier that we want to also remember who is sitting with us in the room. And some people and some congregations appreciate the current event, the politics, the challenge to what they're seeing in the newspapers, and other congregations appreciate the pause 
appreciate saying, you know, I come to shul, so I get away from that stuff. And it's it's kind of the 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 person who's delivering the sermon to really know who is walking in and how will we make that connection? Because if I want to talk about current events and they want the pause, then we're not going to make that connection. Now, with that said, sometimes there are world events and current events that must be addressed. So it's not just about, you know, do, do, do the people in the room want to hear it? But sometimes certain things need to be said. And we're living in a world that's moved quickly into spaces and areas that are either morally or even physically dangerous. And, you know, it is the responsibility for the person giving the sermon, the rabbi or whoever is doing that, to gauge that. When is it a current event thing? Who is sitting in the room with me for the connection? Or is this something that's happened that comfort or not, this needs to be addressed? Sure. So on that note, um, I want to move into the uh, first few of our uh, contestants this year um, who are both talking about a current event. Um, Rabbi Lisa Grishka of Temple Emmanuel Beth Shalom in Montreal, Rabbi Dan Moskowitz of Temple Shalom in Vancouver. Uh, Rabbi Lisa speaks to us about the relentless forward pull of technology and the, the lessons that it has for humans. And uh, Rabbi Dan Moskowitz reminds us that Judaism has something wise to say about all of contemporary life, including the rapidly changing technology. And Finally, because they're both talking about the Akedah, uh, I want to finish with Rabbi Jordan Shainer of Temple Sinai Congregation in Toronto, who gives us a sermon in a song about some similar themes. Your rabbi is not a robot. I know, because I've clicked the I am not a robot box (laughs) and then gone on to click those little squares that show traffic lights or bicycles, which is to say I've done a CAPTCHA, a completely automated public touring test to tell computers and humans apart. I suspect that over the past two years as technology two decades, excuse me, as technology has advanced, this challenge has gotten a whole lot harder. And in fact, I read about a case where AI convinced a human task rabbit worker to fill out a CAPTCHA (laughs) on its behalf. So usually the phrase beside the CAPTCHA says, I am not a robot, right? And you check the box and you click the squares and the computer program decides that you're human and you're done. But recently, I saw something different. This time, the phrase said, confirm humanity. (laughs) Confirm humanity. And I thought to myself, well, there's a good Rosh Hashanah challenge. Confirm humanity. Today, I want to give us three R's. No, not reduce, reuse, recycle. That's another sermon. But three R's which come from a timeless story to help us do exactly that. Now the story is the one that we'll read this morning, the story of Abraham and Isaac. And it's a hard story. Let's 
have that up front, a father bringing his son to be sacrificed in response to God's command. But there are three moments in this very human story which tell us something lasting and profound. Third and finally, Abraham puts down the knife. Now let's be honest, he is not so good at resting and he doesn't pause for long. He finds the ram, an alternate sacrifice. He names the mountain, God blesses him. He pauses for that and then he goes back down. But a special word is used for his descent, one I've never really noticed before. Vayashav, Abraham returns. It's the same root as the word tshuva, repentance, our sacred task on these days. Our third R is return. Technology only goes forward. We humans live differently. Sometimes we go forward, sometimes we go back. Abraham is different when he comes down that mountain. He refocuses on his family. He has a second act. We too are different each year on Rosh Hashanah. We remember not just facts, but feelings, not just where we were, but who we were and who we might become. Every year we reorient, repeat, return, Rabbi Rachel Berenblatt writes. Every year the work is the same because it's human nature, human nature, to need to make tshuva daily, weekly, monthly, annually. We are always human. We are always missing the mark. We are always needing to return. Returning confirms our humanity. We could see this as a weakness as a fatal human flaw. After all, computers have no need to relate, to rest, to return and repent. But I look around and all I see is beauty. Human beings, each of us trying to do our best, trying to come home. What would it take to get back to borrowing sugar from a neighbor, to carving out time to rest and reimagine, to examining our actions so as to become our best selves. So yes, let's keep clicking on those bicycles and those traffic lights, but let's also rebuild our relationships, rediscover rest, return to our highest selves in this new year, Together, let us confirm our humanity. Shabbat Shalom and Shana Tova. Who will decide how AI will be used and, as importantly, how it will not be used? The late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of blessed memory astutely observed that never before have humans been faced with more choices, but never before have the great society-shaping institutions offered less guidance on why we should choose this way rather than that. Listen to me here, please. If Judaism and Torah cannot speak with wisdom and moral clarity to this moment, then why listen to them anymore? The core mission of the Jewish people has always been 
to critically appraise societal directions and through the wisdom of our tradition to be an orla goyim, a light unto the nations that guides us along the precarious path of human existence. Rabbi Schiff explains, if Judaism is to have relevance going forward, it will need to emphasize the historic Jewish task of evaluating contemporary civilization critically and offering a Jewish vision for how to live Jewishly alongside it. To at once be a part of and a part from this rapidly changing world. Former Israeli Prime Minister and President Shimon Peres, Zichron Livracha, once observed that the greatest contribution of the Jewish people to the world is dissatisfaction. <laughs> we are eternally dissatisfied, never happy with the way the world is, but we care about how it should be. When the world saw human beings as slaves and chattel to be exploited day and night, Judaism responded with the Sabbath and six-day work week. A day of rest did not exist until Judaism commanded it and our rabbis insisted upon it. We gave that to the world. When humanity found pleasure and nourishment in animal products, Judaism responded with the laws of kashrut, setting limits and bounds for what is proper to eat and how to eat it. Because not everything that we can do, should we do. And that's a core belief in Judaism. When God commanded, Vishinantam levanecha, and you shall teach your children, the rabbis of the Talmud more than 2,000 years ago set up public schools and required that every parent enroll their children by age six. 2,000 years ago. They added that students should not be beaten with a stick or a cane, that older students should help younger ones, and that children should not be kept from their lessons by other duties, like working on the field or in sweatshops. All of these, all of these are contrarian and radical ideas. Judaism said then, as we must say now, wait. Consider the implication of these practices. Is there a better way? Should we do this? What is lost? What is gained? And perhaps the best example of the contrarian or prophetic voice of Judaism through the ages comes from the Torah portion that we read just this morning. The Akedah, the near-human sacrifice of Abraham's son Isaac. Had Abraham consulted an AI as he stood upon the top of Mount Moriah, his son bound in wood to wood, a knife raised in his hand, the AI of the day, which like the AI of today, would have contained all of the available knowledge on the subject at the time, because that's where AI is. It's the whole internet. Had Abraham said, hey Siri, instead of Hineni, <laughs> that pre-Torah AI would have answered, sacrifice your son. Why? Because that's what everyone else was doing back then. That was the prevailing way of practice amongst the pagans and the idol worshippers that Abraham lived amongst. AI is a large language model. It only knows what it already knows, what is already known. But Abraham, Abraham said no. It was Abraham's humanity. It was his human intelligence that held back the knife. He was contrarian and thank God for it. He didn't follow the program or the algorithm. His humanity was a feature, not a bug in the system. And do you remember what Abraham was called when he was first introduced in the Torah? He was known in our tradition, he is known in our tradition as Ha'ivri. 
which comes from the word aver, which means side. The Midrash asks, why was he called Ha'ivri? Because all of the world was on one side, and he was willing to take his stand on the other side, where we often stand as a people. That was the test. That was what God was counting on. God was counting on Abraham, the nonconformist, and so God gave Abraham and us, his descendants, a Torah and not an algorithm. Our humanity is a feature, it's not a bug. Like with matzah machines, when you remove humans from the equation, you may lose way too much. Will our response to artificial intelligence emerge from sacred texts, from the power of reason and the Jewish ethical tradition? Or will they simply be fashioned, as so many things are, around the practical realities of what is possible, what is profitable, what is popular, and what is currently not illegal? Will the most important decisions of life and society be decided by mortal human beings or immortal algorithms? Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. Shana Tova. I'm Rabbi Jordan Shaner here at Temple Sinai. I hope that you are having uh, the start of a sweet, happy, healthy new year. I just wanted to share with you a short message about the Torah reading for the second day of Rosh Hashanah, a reading uh, uh, which I've often found has uh, an obvious interpretation, which is not my favorite, which I have to say is quite problematic. And so uh, I wrote a little song about it. I hope that uh, you'll enjoy it, that it will be fun, but also that it will make us think in new ways as we approach a new year. This is the story of the closest call If it went the other way, we might not be here at all There's a lesson in this, what I want to sing That a little self-doubt can be a healthy thing Listen up, ask a question, inquire further You might make a big mistake with righteous fervor Uncertainty and stubbornness are your norm You might get tangled up by your own ram's horn It was early in the morning, maybe late at night And the world's first Jew had an awful plight He heard Avraham, Avraham, and said he nanny Then a cottage Baruch who tested him with something shady Your child, your loved one, your only son Bring Yitzchak up the mountain, you will be shown Now Avram heard God say Ha'alehu, offer him up and smoke Yitzchabab ben barbecue Now I have to think it's possible he heard it wrong After all, it was the Bronze Age and old Canaan Can't blame a guy for thinking that's just what you do Human sacrifice just wasn't yet a big taboo And also I wonder if it isn't so today Do we not send our children out into the fray? Do we not leave unhoused people out on the street? Do we not use each other?
each other, steal, lie, and cheat. So you don't have to be self-righteous at all. If you were there, it might have had an even closer call. Listen up, ask a question, and inquire further. Or you might make a big mistake with righteous fervor. When certainty and stubbornness are who you are, you might get tangled by your own shofar. On the peak of Mount Moriah with a knife in his hand, both Avram and Yitzchak prepared to follow the command. Whether it was right or wrong, they never stopped to ask. Was it fate or faith that led them to that awful task? Then suddenly the angel cried out one more time, Avraham, Avraham, don't commit this crime. When he raised his eyes, what was it that you think he saw? It was a ram caught in the thicket by the first shofar. And I think about this when I picture that ram. We all have the potential to be like Abraham. That is to say the things that make us who we are. Like the horns on the ram or Abe's love for God. They can be used for good, but if we don't look out, they get caught up in a thicket. Make it hard to figure out what we're really meant to do when we face the test. A little self-doubt can help us understand the rest. Like the ram, we sometimes need to have our horns cut down. Let the air flow through and we hear the sound of freedom, of turning, of getting loose from the tangle we've been caught in by our own truth. Now I know what you're thinking, the angel said. Good job, Abe, you passed this test by your faith in God. But I still have concerns about what it means. That such devotion can lead to such awful scenes. And what about Sarah when she heard the news? Shouldn't she get a say? Yitzchak was her son too. We're supposed to think the test was following Hashem's call. But these doubts cling to my mind like an old prayer shawl. So I prefer to think of Ram really past the bar when he put down the knife. And picked up the shofar. So that was the story of the closest call. If it went the other way, we might not be here at all. There's a lesson in this. When we can't move forward and we're caught by the horns, we've got to let it go. Listen up, hear the shofar, and set yourself free. Remember as we close 5783, certainty and stubbornness are not the same as faith. And that's the whole derasha that I've got to say. So shana tova, good yantif, and what's more, be blessed until the next time you hear the ram's horn. Shana tova. Those were all interesting. Uh, how do you talk to your congregants about AI? Have they asked you about it? No one's formally asked me, but it has come up in conversations. It has come up in just what seems to be chit-chat or sometimes, you know, sort of ask the rabbi, but don't ask the rabbi moments where you don't want to technically ask the rabbi sometimes because the answer is then Jewishly uh, uh, something that has been officially communicated. So you you ask the rabbi, but not really ask the rabbi. Um, and, and so we've had those kinds of conversations. Um, I think the struggle with it is that the, the move forward technologically is always there. There's no way we know. There's no way to stop the move forward. The question becomes the pace. The idea of are we ready for the pace of the movement forward? I think that's a really important question, especially when we're raising young people with these realities. So to us, they're innovations. To them, they won't be innovations. They're being raised in a world that already has it. Mm -hmm. And so the question of the pace and the balance. Um, 
any move forward with uh, technology, AI, the way I view it is we are introducing another possibility of disconnect, another possibility of you're not hearing my voice, you're hearing it through the filter of the technology or the news through another filter, and we're, we're not sure we're well ahead of that one. Um, it, it, to me, really does represent this idea of, are we able to make sure that we are connecting on a human level, especially Jewishly, because we are not allowed intermediaries when it comes to our spiritual connections? So to recognize... We're not Catholic. Yeah, I mean, or, or a few other faiths as well, that sure. we're, we must have direct contact with each other, direct contact with the divine. So we want to make sure in my mind, we're not sabotaging ourselves by creating habits and um, approaches that build on the intermediary aspect without recognizing that's what we're doing, and then challenging ourselves Jewishly when we say, well, we can't have intermediaries. So I think it really does present a lot of discussion that needs to happen, not just societally, not just on a human-to-human -human level, but very much on a Jewish level as well. Yeah, I, uh, there's a lot of discussions often within Judaism that Judaism doesn't change and, and the major principles of Judaism and, and the ideas and what we do, especially when you're discussing it from an Orthodox context, Judaism uh, sticks to its principles and stays with it. And I like to point out from a from a sermon perspective, forget about AI, right? Until fairly recently, if you gave a sermon in the vernacular, language, right, in Yiddish or in English, um, you were virtually excommunicated from your council of rabbis or whatever it was. You had to speak in a holy tongue, and that was where Torah was being taught. And now it is almost unheard of to hear it, you know, outside of, you know, a vernacular language, um, where you hear sermons in Hebrew or in Israel, where it is the native tongue. And uh, so I find that that's a great example of recognizing that the change is inevitable. It's also, I mean, that example to me is a great example of peoplehood. Because the the group that introduced the idea that we we connect through sermon through the vernacular was the Reformed community, and now as yeah. you've said, try telling that to a Haredi rabbi who gives a sermon in English. <laughs> well, that's exactly my point: is that it happens in in a very organic, natural way because we are one people. We almost focus and we're sensitive to the distinctiveness of each community and, you know, that joke about the desert island, the man, the Jewish person being rescued has yes. two buildings, they're both shuls, but I don't go to that one. Um, you know, that that sense of joking ourselves with ourselves about it. But in reality, we influence each other so importantly because we do move forward. We cannot stagnate. That is the whole point of Lech Lecha when God comes to our ancestors and says, get on with it, like move forward. Um, and so it it does happen. You're correct, and and the the idea of the language of the sermon is a perfect example of exactly that. All right. Well, on that note, let's move on to our next two sermons. Um, Rabbi Stephen Wernick of Beth Sedek in Toronto uh, talks to us about how we can embody prayer and how speaking prayers are not enough. And Rabbi Baruch Friedman Cole, the rabbi in residence of Kihilat Beit Israel in Ottawa, and the rabbi emeritus of Beth Sedek in Toronto, gives us a powerful reminder of the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War and the deep lessons it offers for every Yom Kippur. <laughs> Mi ichye hu mi yamut Mi vekitso hu mi lo vekitso 
How do we transform the traditional liturgy or parts of it to connect our prayers to the most important issues of our lives? That's the question we asked when we chose Va'ani Tefilati, connecting the divine within us as our theme for this year. The verse comes from the Psalms. In full it reads, Va'ani Tefilati Lecha, Adonai Etratzon, Elohim Barov Chazdecha, Aneni Biamet Yishecha. Our Machzor translates it as, May this be an auspicious time, Adonai, for my prayer. God, in your abundant mercy, answer me with your faithful deliverance. A more literal translation, though, would read, Va'ani tefilati lecha, and I, I am a prayer to you. Or as the note in the margin understands its meaning, our lives may be seen as prayers offered to God. In other words, when prayer inspires us to live meaningful lives, we become prayer. Consider again Unatana Tokif and its haunting question, Mi miyamut, who shall live and who shall die? In this context, this is not a petition or request for another year. It's a statement of fact. There are many things that may happen, that do happen, that will happen, that are beyond our control. But tshuva, tfila utzdaka, mavirin et roa a return to values, prayer, and staka can lessen the sting, the severity of bad things when they come our way. Notice, tefillah does not stand alone in the response. Prayer must be accompanied by return to core values and beliefs, and an action that brings those values into the world. How we respond to what is not in our control is a measure of our character. When someone dies, are we a comfort? When someone is ill, do we visit and support the family? When fires rage or floods flood, do we make a charitable gift, send clothing and supplies? The Russian war against Ukraine continues. Thousands of people are still leaving, including tens of thousands of Ukrainian and Russian Jews, and those who qualify to make Aliyah. Have we ensured our global Jewish communal organizations have the resources to rescue them? Each of the statements of Unitana Tokif is a challenge to our principles. And as one of my mentors taught me, Principles only matter when they are challenged. It's easy to say we believe in something. It's harder when we must act on that belief. Look at the list again when we recite this prayer later this morning and ask yourself, in the year ahead, how might I become this prayer and be a ma'avir, one who lessens the suffering of someone else? Prayer changes the world through changing us, writes Rabbi David Wolpe. It moves us to action, Praying pulls us closer to God and therefore toward what might be, what should be. When we open ourselves to the possibility of prayer to change us, then the amount of time we spend here is irrelevant, for we will leave here singing, Va'ani tefilati lecha Adonai et ratzon Elohim berov chastecha aneni and I, I am a prayer to you, for our lives would have become prayers to God, for which we can all say, Amen. Fifty years ago on a Friday night, 
Kol Nidre ushered in a day of fasting and prayer. Yom Kippur afternoon, the sacred tranquility was shattered in Israel and for Jews around the world. Yossi Klein Halevi writes, Sirens sounded like a premature blast of the shofar that ends Yom Kippur. Avram Rabinowitz described the scene in the cabinet at 12.30. Golda Meir was pale. She began with a detailed report of events. She spoke in a monotone, and then she reached the bottom line. In the early hours of the morning, word had been received from an unimpeachable source that war would break out at 6 p.m. this day on both the Egyptian and Syrian fronts. The ministers were stunned. They had been told for years that even in a worst-case situation, military intelligence would provide at least a 48-hour warning to call up the reserves. Now, two-thirds of the army was unmobilized. An aide entered and handed Diana a note. The defense minister announced that Egyptian planes were already attacking in Sinai. By the second day of battle, the IDF hadn't yet managed to organize. In the fallen forts along the Suez, there were rows of Israeli POWs, stunned and disheveled, with hands padlocked. On the Golan Heights, Syrian tanks were approaching the Galil in the north. Uncertainty and confusion. It appeared as if Israel would be overrun. Moshe Dayan contemplated use of an atomic weapon. As individuals, Yom Kippur is a day when we contemplate mortality and morality. In Israel, the day has magnified the enormity of the death of almost 3,000 soldiers and deepened by the psychological trauma that permeated family after family. The Israeli novel, Tiyum Kavanot, tells of a young observant soldier in the Yom Kippur War. The title, Adjusting Sights, refers to calibrations of the soul and of the tank turret. It was the end of Yom Kippur. We were two young soldiers, Dove and I. We had studied together and trained in the same tank. I was the gunner, Dove was the loader. Together we boarded the soldier's bus. We thought we'd be back soon. After three terrible days that followed, I heard of Dove's death. In the spring, we hosed down our tanks, handed in our gear, and returned to Talmud. I wanted to tell the rabbi what had happened how our tanks were knocked out on the second day, how they burst into flames, how the blackened loader hit the gun at ground with his leg on fire, and how our tank commander, Gidi, shouted, Gunner, fire! And I shouted back, I don't know what to aim at. Gunner, don't lose the horizon. This is a war, not a maneuver. Do you hear me? Yes, sir, I hear you. What should I aim at? Where? In the ambush, with no radio and unadjusted gun sights, and the missiles coming closer, and the tanks around us bursting into flame, Giddy had shouted, Gunner, pray, we're taking fire. I prayed. There wasn't a hair's breadth then between my heart and my lips. The following year, at the conclusion of the fast, Chaim is in Yerushalayim. The penitential prayers echoed in my ear. Asher biyado nefesh kol chai. You who hold in hands the souls of all that live in the spirit of each mortal. Master of all worlds, spare the work of your hands. 
A small cloud drifted across the moon. I stood there in silence. I aimed my thoughts at my friend Dove, dead. And I said, Shalom Aleichem, peace unto you. The classical Jewish instrument for the recalibration of our souls, Cheshbon HaNefesh, internal reevaluation, the mitzvah tradition is unknown to so many, yet it still preserves power to help. And Yom Kippur also helps us to adjust our kavanot, to get our lives into better focus. Complacency is dangerous in our daily lives and our spiritual practice. We feel that we know best and don't need to ask for help. But what is familiar can act and become perilous. That is true in the world around as well. In adjusting sights, Chaim eventually comes to a different and deeper understanding of God in life. There is appreciation and gratitude. Yet experience has taught him that life is not so easy and faith not so glib. One does not always return home in a few days. Some never return. Faith is clouded like the moon. Chaim doesn't discard his faith. He struggles with it, just as we do. Yom Kippur is a day when we place ourselves in the coordinates. We aim, as it were, at ourselves, without arrogance or complacency, hopefully with humility. We must adjust our sights, our focus on the world, on our families, on ourselves. Gunner, fire. I shouted back, I don't know what to aim at. Gunner, don't lose the horizon. This is a war, not a maneuver. Do you hear me, Gunner? Yes, sir, I hear you. What should I aim at? Where? Rachel, do you remember the Yom Kippur War? Do you uh, remember knowing about it as a as a kid? Do you have a connection to it and Yom Kippur? I well, episodic memories. So I remember going to school. I went to a a, a, a day school. I remember my teachers crying, and um, I remember the the almost panic that I felt coming from adults. Um, then I remember the, the flip, which I didn't understand where the panic turned into, okay. And then the, I remember, I remember the emotions. I remember the, as I'm saying, the crying, the panic, the flip to, okay, then the excitement and then the frustration. Those are the emotions I remember. It was not till much, much later that I learned of it as learning about the war and then understanding each of those stages, understanding how it all fit into my episodic memories of it. Wow. Um, yeah, I was not yet born. Uh, I was uh, negative a few years old. Um, but I do remember from a very early age already, there was a piece of art hanging in our house. that was a print from an artist, I believe, Stanley Lewis in Montreal. Uh, and it now sits in my sister's house. And it was uh, a picture, of, a drawing of an individual. And half of the individual was 
wrapped in a talit over his head, a, deep in prayer, and the same person, the same face on the other half, um, had a helmet on and was wearing green army fatigues. And it was titled Yom Kippur. And that, you know, that there was this idea. And it, from a very early age, that I, I, I had just could like meditate on that image of realizing that there were times in our history when the holiest day of the year uh, was a day when people were out fighting for the very survival of their of their peoplehood. Um, and I, I cannot think of a more powerful way of thinking about Yom Kippur is that sometimes, sometimes you have to fight for your forgiveness, sometimes you have to pray, um, and that the two really come together in, the, in that way. Yeah, I think it was also a sense of a loss of innocence um, on on our part, where we naively thought that holy days are respected um, across the globe. This mm-hmm. idea that you know uh, the war in Europe would would pause for Christmas because you know we're all gentlemen, like it just this sense of innocent naivete, and to me, it's also one of those moments of a history repeat. When we look at our history. And uh, we have in Jewish law that to preserve life, we can suspend the rules of Shabbat. Um, We got that at Hanukkah. We got that because the Hasmoneans, who were the priests at the time, recognized that if we don't fight on Shabbat, they'll kill us. Mm -hmm. Like, won't walk away. That's it. We basically put a target on us one day of the week. And so they've said, we cannot risk Judaism that way and change halakha, change the law. So this sense of naivety of an enemy respects what you hold holy is, I think the Yom Kippur War sort of removed that veil for us um, and and in a shocking, shocking way. Yeah. All right, well, let's uh, move on to our last two candidates. Uh, Rabbi Adam Cutler of the Adath Israel Congregation in Toronto, who teaches us about very long-term thinking and how the high holidays are both timeless and very timely. And finally, we'll have Rabbi Alana Krieger-Lapidus of Beth Tzedek in Calgary, Alberta, who will talk to us about the difference between praying about forgiveness and real tshuva. The U.S. Department of Energy had a problem. How do you communicate with people up to 10,000 years into the future that a nuclear disposal site is dangerous? You can't just put up a few signs and hope that in many years from now, they will still be understood. Two philosophers proposed a solution. Scientists, they argued, should bioengineer a cat that would change colors when it came into proximity to dangerous levels of radioactivity. At the same time, these philosophers also proposed that stories and poems, songs and frescoes be created about the importance of staying away from color-changing cats. This myth, they hoped, would be passed on from one generation to the next and would potentially safeguard the well-being of their far-off descendants. I like this story because it is a kind of parable. These philosophers had something vital they wanted to pass along for generations to come. They knew that they couldn't control the whole story. But they also knew that with a radical creation, the influencing of human culture, and perhaps a little help from above, that they could speak to descendants 10,000 years into the future. 
The manner in which we are celebrating Rosh Hashanah today is both very strange and extraordinarily significant. In the Torah, there is only one thing, one mitzvah, that sets this day apart, blowing the shofar. And yet this year, because of Shabbat, we're not even doing that on the first day. Nevertheless, here we are, celebrating Rosh Hashanah in many different ways, with family rituals, with religious imagery, deeply moving liturgy. And this is why. Some 2,500 years ago, our religion, indeed our very identity as a people separate and apart, nearly came to an end. The Babylonians destroyed our sacred temple and sent them into exile. But we did not disappear. Indeed, we grew stronger. We did then what we have always done. We came together as a unified people, kept what we could and let go of what we couldn't, all the while maintaining the values that have guided us from our very beginning. How did we do this? Those ancestors of ours saw that on the first day of the month of Tishrei, their Babylonian neighbors would gather and celebrate their new year by renewing the covenant with their God and counting their emperor as their God's son. And the celebration left an impression. Indeed, so much so that our ancestors borrowed the holiday, scrubbed it of its paganism, and crowned not some foreign god, but our god as king. Because of that transformation, we are here, still able to celebrate 2,500 years later. The late scholar Simon Ravidwitz called us Jews the ever-dying people. I like to see us, though, as the ever evolving people. Forms and practices change over time. But what makes us, us, our text, our service, our acts of loving kindness is eternal. I cannot tell you that this is the year that all of the problems of the world will be solved. What I will tell you, though, is that I take tremendous comfort in knowing that whatever comes our way, we'll do as we have always done. We will come together as a unified people, keep what we can, and let go of what we can't, all the while maintaining the values that have guided us from our very beginning. My youngest has this shtick when it's time to bring in the groceries from the car. He challenges himself to see how many bags he can carry in at once so he can make the fewest trips back and forth. Now, besides cutting off the circulation in his hands, he always comes up against one insurmountable obstacle, which is that he cannot open the door and walk through while he's still holding the bags. And no matter t how many times he has done this before, it always takes him a few beats to realize that he needs to put down the bags so he can open the door and walk through. Now that's not as simple as it may seem. His ego is at stake. And it is only when he can put his ego aside and put down the bags that he is free to open and then walk through the door. For me, this is a lovely close-to-home metaphor for Rosh Hashanah. As we approach the new year, it no longer serves us to carry our baggage from the past year with us as we walk through the door to a different space and time. We will soon participate in a slichot service and are encouraged to practice teshuva in the coming days. What is the difference between slichot and teshuva? 
In modern Hebrew, we say slicha when we want to say, I'm sorry, or more specifically, forgive me. And teshuva, on the other hand, is repentance. In modern Hebrew, it means answer, which is also a beautiful thing. In some ways, though, apologizing is the easy part. For some of us, it is forgiveness that trips us up. This creates a problem because when we are trying to be like God in God's image, B'Tselem Elohim, forgiveness is part of the deal. Not forgiving, the famous quote goes, is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. There is a story I love about an old Rebbe walking with a young yeshiva bocher, one of the Rebbe's best students. Up ahead, they see a young woman loaded down with baskets trying to cross a small river in her path. As they approach, the Rebbe gently scoops her up to safety on the other side of the river. She thanks him and continues on her way. The Rebbe and student continue walking in what seems like companionable silence, but all the while the yeshiva bocher is shaken and seething. Finally, after almost an hour, he cannot contain himself and blurts out, Rebbe, how could you help that young woman across the river like that? The Rebbe stops short, surprised by the outburst, and then smiles at, at his young student and says gently, Are you still thinking about that? I put that young woman down miles ago. I put that young woman down miles ago, and yet you have carried her all this way. It reminds me of when I was a kid at camp, and I got to go water skiing for the first time. Of course, I fell, and my big mistake was not letting go of the rope. I think I drank half of the lake that day, but it was a good lesson. Sometimes it's better to let go than be dragged. Even the autumn leaves remind us how beautiful it is to let go. Life is complicated, and there will be times when we will get hurt, offended, or upset at others, at ourselves, even at God. The question remains, though, how to go about forgiving? How do we let go of the anger and bitterness that is holding us from our best selves? One of the secrets we don't always talk about is that the person we often have the hardest time forgiving is ourselves, the selves that allowed ourselves to be manipulated or abused or taken advantage of because we didn't know then what we know now. Offering ourselves forgiveness may be the first step in forgiving others. As we head into this new year and pray that we are written in the book of life, I hope we take these days of awe into our hearts, gather up the courage to face our transgressions with humility and have the strength to be vulnerable, to forgive those who genuinely apologize, to forgive the younger version of ourselves who didn't know better, and to go forward with faith and grace into a sweet new year. From my family to yours, Shana Tova Umetuka, Gadiantef and Gutyor. Rabbi Rachel, 
Um, this has been great. I cannot wait to uh, judge these with you. Uh, you are going to be part of the jury pool for uh, selecting our winner, which will be announced, uh, I believe, in a couple weeks hence, uh, when we get to offer the Kiddush Cup to the next person. Uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion and uh, can't wait to, to hear that. Thank you for coming on, Bonjour Chai, this week and for helping with this. My pleasure. And I'm so excited as well. And I really think this is so wonderful, not just in a sense of as Jews being able to hear some of our leaders that we don't really get a chance because geographically or for whatever reason, but also as Canadians to be able to know of the rabbis across Canada and the wonderful things that they bring um, and the ways that we can connect with them. It's so great. I'm excited and, and looking forward to our discussion about these sermons as well. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending September 23rd, Shabbat Parashat Ha'azinu. The show is produced and edited by Zach Hoffman. The executive producer for CGN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get